Listener Production. Hi, I'm Anthony Matafari, and I'm the lifestyle editor at Car Sales. For me, when I'm out on the road on a road trip with friends and family, you tend to have conversations you wouldn't usually have anywhere else. So I thought it'd be a good idea to head out on the road with some well-known Aussies to get to know them a little bit better. Let's meet today's guest. Steve Price, thank you so much for having us along for the ride. First of all, what are we sitting in today? We're in a Mercedes C300, which uh, is the brand new repurposed C300 with all the new tech in it. If I had to describe it, it's the smoothest car mm. I've driven recently, and I've driven a lot of different cars in the Mercedes range, and I've got a uh, an older Porsche 911 myself. So yeah. this is a very smooth bit of gear with all the latest equipment in it. We're basically sitting in what looks like the entertainment section of JB Hi-Fi at the moment, <laughs> the screens and whatnot. We are. I guess Tesla was the ones that first put the that size screen in the middle. Mm. Uh, the problem with Tesla, of course, is nowhere near as well built as a Mercedes. Yes. But uh, <laughs> the, those big screens, they do put up a message all the time saying, "Don't let M bucks," which is the the technical term for all of this computer gear in here. Don't let it distract you. I'm not quite sure how you, you can't let it distract you. It's uh, better than my television at home. Would you call yourself a car person? Yeah, I am a car person. Um, probably because uh, of my family. My dad was a car dealer oh, okay. for his whole life. So he sold Holdens. And um, I inherited my love of cars off of him. Although when I was a teenager, I was only allowed to buy Holdens. So I'm now changed. I've jumped over to Mercedes. And I'm an ambassador for Mercedes-Benz of Melbourne, which is a great thing. And I get to drive all these lovely cars. Hopefully I'm in safe hands today. Let's fire this beauty up and uh, take it for a long a ride. Let's go for it. So Steve, you mentioned that your dad was a car dealer and you grew up all around Holden. So my money is on that your first car was a Holden. Yeah, it was. It was a dark blue uh, FC Holden. So I got my license at 16 in South Australia. And in those days, and this will horrify road safety experts, all you had to do was turn 16 and then you did a practical driving test mm. after being taught by your mother in a Austin A40 or something like that, some appallingly unsafe car. And if you passed your driver's license test, you got your driver's license. So my dad always thought that you should always pay for anything that you get as a kid. Mm. So this is back in, so I was 16 in 1971. So a year before I started work. And so he bought home a very dark blue. It looked to me like someone had repainted it. FC Holden, so it would have been 10 years old probably. And he made me pay $50 for it. That's, that's all right. Which given I was earning $17 a week, it's a fair way <laughs> to pay it off. Do you have any fond memories of that car? Go on any South Australian road trips or was it just down to the, uh, the drive-in movies for some dates? Well, that's a very provocative question. <laughs> um, you always have a fond memory of your first car, uh, but I then uh, traded out of that into uh, an EK, which was a Holden model that had wings on the back. Mm. So they were trying to copy some of the American designs. And this thing, no kidding, was lime green with a black bonnet. Oh. Now, I don't know where that paint job came from, whether it was standard or someone had done it, but I had that for a while. So, yeah, look, I was never going to get anything but a Holden. I had no choice. 
So because your dad worked in the dealer, was that something that it was like a family business? So you were expected to, you know, join the family business, sell cars, be amongst all that? Uh, he didn't own the business, but he was the managing director. So um, there might have been some expectation that I go and do that, but uh, I didn't end up doing that. I, I'm just not sure I'd be such a great salesperson. And in those days, of course, car dealers were considered dodgy, mm. very dodgy. Now they're very honest, of course, but back in the, particularly the 60s and early 70s, they'd be stuffing diffs with bananas. And, I mean, <laughs> do all sorts of wicked things mm. to sell vehicles. And I even had a situation where uh, my dad sold me an HQ Holden, which I took on my honeymoon yeah. in my, my first marriage. I've been married a couple of times. Anyway, first marriage, I get the Holden HQ. We get married at a farm in central Victoria and head off to go to Noosa for the honeymoon. Got as far as West Wyalong. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to West yeah. Wyalong. It's in the middle of nowhere, <laughs> on the edge of the Hay Plain, probably the most desolate place you could be in, the, in, in an Australian summer, and the car blew up. Oh, no. <laughs> so the engine went on it. Days, this was the days before mobile phones, of course. Mm. So I go to the phone box and ring the old man up and abuse him. Uh, he was having none of it. He did arrange to get the parts trucked out there to fix it, but my first three nights of marriage uh, on this wedding day was spent in a motel in West Wyalong. I should have taken that as a portent for how the, the marriage would end up, really. <laughs> it started disastrously and ended the same uh, way. I think that's why a podcast like this is so fantastic, because it drags you back to remind you about good and bad times of your life. What were you like as a kid? I didn't like school very much. I didn't have a great attention span. And I guess the, the, the way you end up in, in media and then ultimately in talkback radio, I always had strong opinions, so I was pretty disruptive in class. Awful, awful school reports. I just wanted to get to work. I didn't have a, any inkling to study at all. Study just didn't interest me. I wanted to get out and earn a salary. So I failed third year high school, which is what's at now, year 10. Yeah, failed year 10 and repeated it. Uh, managed to get through the second time round and year 11. And by the time I got to what was in Adelaide then called matriculation, which was what is year 12 now, I um, applied for a job and I left before the end of year 12 to go to work. I remember a report card from one year in high school where the teacher said if Stephen paid more attention to his work and less attention to what everyone else was doing, he'd probably do much better. Um, all that said to me was that I was curious and mm. I like talking to people about what they're doing and where they've come from and who they are and all of those things that make for a good journalist or a good talkback radio presenter. You want to hear stories from people and I think uh, one of the things I pride myself on is the fact that when I'm interviewing somebody, like you're interviewing me now, I'm always much more keen to hear the answer than hear my own voice asking the question. Was that journalism leap, was that logical or did that kind of just come about due to circumstance? My dad saw an ad in the local newspaper where the Adelaide News, which was then owned and still is by Rupert Murdoch, uh, they had a position for what they call a copy boy. Now, it's as bad as it sounds being a copy boy. <laughs> what your job really was, was you turned up in a suit and tie you worked six days a week. Uh, you worked about 14 hours on a Saturday and you worked about 10 hours every other day. 
and you're in a room full of, and it was predominantly men back in these days, so I'm talking 1972, um, I would be charged with going and feeding parking meters for the reporters' cars that were down on the street. I'd have to go and get uh, their morning tea and their lunches from the local hamburger shop. Uh, I had to push a tea trolley around the newsroom. I had to go down and pick up the first editions of the paper and bring them upstairs. So you did every job apart from the actual job of being a reporter. So you quickly wanted to get out of that. And what you were aiming to do was to become a cadet journalist, which is what eventually happened. But I was being paid $17 a week uh, for six days a week work. And I got a 50 cents a week promotion when I became head copy boy, as they called it. So it was incredibly interesting. And all of this predates digital. No computers, no mobile phones, typewriters, people smoking at work, um, lots of drinking in the local pub, lots of beer consumed at all parts of the day. But uh, you wouldn't even know what this this is, but there was a machine back then called a ticker tape machine. Oh, yeah. The, it used to have this the thin string come out of it, yeah. Strip out. So if, if the ticker tape machine had one bell went ding, it was just some run-of-the-mill story might have happened. Two bells, more urgent, three bells, sometimes four. If you got to four bells, you knew the world was about to end. <laughs> so uh, when I was copy boy, four bell stories included John Lennon got shot, oh, wow. a pope died, those sorts of events, mm. or a big earthquake, a big natural disaster. So it was fascinating, man. That's what sucked me in. So you obviously started from the bottom. You moved through a, different, a few different beats. Which yep. one was the most challenging? Probably crime. I mean, because you saw lots of things that you don't really want to see when you're that young. Um, I remember in Adelaide, there was a siege at a gun shop one day. Uh, it would have been in the mid-70s. Um, this was a rifle shop right in the middle of Adelaide in Rundle wow. Street. And a criminal got in there and held the owner of the gun shop hostage. And the bloke who was holding the gun owner hostage stepped out onto the footpath with the gun owner in front of him. And I was standing about 200 metres down the road and my photographer had a long lens on my shoulder pointed at him. And he turned towards us with these two shotguns. The gun owner dropped to the ground and the special operations group shot him. Wow. So you don't normally get to see those sorts of things. Um, I covered a particularly brutal mass murder of young teenage women called the Truro Murders. And I can remember sitting beside the road and they were, they found seven of these poor young women had been murdered. I mean, that stuff was pretty challenging. Um, so crime's probably the most gruesome. Um, and covering the courts is probably the most challenging because you can't make mistakes. And, you know, we had to, we, we didn't have the luxury of, of any digital technology, so we're taking everything down in shorthand. It was, it was pretty primitive. Yeah. How did you make the transition from writing news stories to into opinions? Because I guess most of our listeners would know you from your opinion pieces that are in papers and obviously in radio. Well, once you've served your time as a uh, on-the-road reporter, you get get promoted and I ended up in the opinion pages of the paper. Writing editorials for newspapers, which no one reads, is not very satisfying. Mm. I now write a weekly column in the Herald Sun, which is straight out opinion. Um, and you get pretty immediate feedback on that sort of stuff. So uh, I, I really still enjoy writing. I've worked in TV, radio and 
print and I think print journalism is still my favourite. I get more satisfaction out of writing than speaking and appearing on television becomes a bit of a pain because of hair and makeup and all that sort of stuff. I love writing. I love writing newspaper stories. I love writing opinion for the paper. How do you deal with, I guess, the feedback? Because now everything's digital, it's quite instant. You might say something that you truly feel is correct or whatever it is and whoever's reading it or taking it out of context might not. You have to really steel yourself for that and you can't take much too much notice of it. Um, and uh, I guess the worst examples I've had of that, I was on Q&A on the ABC one night. I've only done it twice. I don't particularly want to have to do it again if I can help it. And I said something that I thought was rather innocuous. There was a, a fellow panellist on the desk, a, a woman, a female, um, and she started to have a crack at me. And I said, look, you know, you're just being hysterical. Apparently, the audience gasped. I didn't realise that there was any other connotation to the word hysterical. Mm. But apparently, it refers back to a woman having to have a hysterectomy. Now, how would I know that? I had no idea. I'm a, you know, a 67-year-old white male who would have no clue. Oh, well, the pile on after that was just relentless. And you just have to ignore it. If you, if you took any notice of all of the, the criticism, and Twitter's probably the worst in terms of people climbing into you about your opinions, you'd just fold up your tent and you'd, you'd go and lie down in a dark corner. Because it gets pretty uh, graphic. Going back to your childhood, any memories of family road trips, good or bad? Yeah, because Dad had access to such uh, a wide range of cars. I mean, we could always go on a family road trip. And yeah, they weren't very glamorous. Uh, I think the first time we went on a genuine road trip we drove to the South Australian border with Victoria just on the other side of Mount Gambier and the highlight was going and standing on the border by the border sign and taking a, a black and white photograph <laughs> of ourselves so that we could uh, show people that we'd been to Victoria uh, but we also did uh, road trips up to Canberra I mean as a teenager you didn't really want to go on a road trip with your parents. And in those days, there was no air conditioning in the mm. car. You had the windows down. It was interminably hot. And it wasn't a huge amount of fun. But cars and road trips are something that I actually uh, have come to embrace later in life. I mean, when my children were growing up, I would always, at the start of the, the longer holidays at the end of the year, always head off on a road trip. I lived in Sydney for a long time. We'd always go up north coast, south coast. I just love getting out on the road. And bizarrely, I like staying at those cheap country motels that people turn <laughs> their noses up. But I've got a thing about country motels. I think they're great. Um, and when you're on a road trip, I mean, you can just take your time and stop at a country bakery. And mm. that's what about being in Australia and, and driving is, is all about. I mean, it's become a little expensive for people now because of the price of fuel. But I'm flying to Sydney uh, at the end of this month and instead of flying back, I've rented a car to drive back because I haven't been down that coast road from Sydney for a long time and I've booked into a motel in Naruma and another one in Meetung. Fantastic. Get out there and see the real Australia. So what do you look for in a country motel? Is there some key red flags or do you just take the risk and just book it? I think you've got to take the risk and that's part of the fun. I mean, and you can find some dreadful ones, but <laughs> uh, normally they're okay. I mean, 
it, like everything else in this country, they started to be gentrified, though. And mm. so suddenly you turn up at a country motel thinking it'll be $80 a night and it's $280 a night because someone's decided to, to modernise it inside. Uh, so how about now, you've got teenage girls. They're how, in the mid-twenties Mid-twenties now. now. How were they with road trips? No, they loved it because they were both uh, into the surfing and we'd go and make sure we found a surf break somewhere or we found ourselves, uh, you know, a, a resort to stay in and lie by the pool all day long. They, they really embraced the whole road trip concept. Were you um, responsible to teach them how to drive? It, yes and no. Um, I'm a big advocate of uh, starting out doing that, but then buying proper driving lessons because I just think it, uh, you teach people bad habits that you have yourself. Uh, I tailgate too much uh, and I, I tend to break the speed limit more often than I should. Uh, so you don't want to teach them those bad habits. You have this reputation of being grumpy old man. Me? Yes, apparently. I've what? heard I've heard on the street. Who said that? Is that something that you dislike or is it something you embrace? Uh, I think it's probably uh, unwarranted, that description. <laughs> um, I, yes, I have strong opinions and clearly when I'm on, on a television show like The Project, um, the other on-air presenters, whether it be Waleed or Carrie or Pete, uh, would disagree with me on a lot of political issues. I see myself as coming from the sensible centre-right and they would probably see themselves coming from the sensible centre-left and so we don't agree on everything. But grumpy? Well, I wouldn't call it grumpy, I'd call it opinionated. I mean, I don't know if you saw it, but I did uh, the 2017 uh, episode of I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here in the Jungle in Africa. And I was in there for 43 days. So that's near on, that's over six weeks, uh, eating beans and rice and all sorts of unspeakable (laughs) parts of animals. And I I I decided when I went in there, you just had to be yourself. And so that's what I tried to do. And I came out of there, I think, with people thinking I wasn't grumpy, that I I said what what I wanted to say, but I didn't get into arguments with people. And... Let me tell you, that was so so hard to do, that show, that you had every right to be grumpy because you were hungry the whole time. You were physically challenged the whole time, but more importantly, you were mentally challenged the whole time because there was pretty much nothing to do. You know, you're in a, in a camp the size of a squash court with, you know, 12 other people. Mm. And uh, it gets very boring during the day and it gets very challenging when there's someone in there that you don't particularly get along with. And there was a couple of people in there that I just had no time for. There was that comedian, Tom Arnold, who was married to Roseanne Barr. Oh, yes. He was a complete pain in the ass. <laughs> um, and I don't know what was Tom's issue. He was first ejected, thank God. But he would just do nothing, lay on his bed and be a pain in the neck. Uh, and there was a couple of the female contestants that I... I didn't particularly get on with and um, we had some arguments but that's what the television show wanted the the real the real personalities of people to come out but look I lost 10 kilo doing it that was the big advantage uh, they paid me well and uh, I made some good friends about with some of the other people who were in the camp and I did things like you know a bungee jump that I would never have done 
unless I'd been so hungry that I had to do it. Um, but no, I'd, I wouldn't consider myself a grumpy old man. I would consider myself, um, I, I get upset where people do put you in a box like that. I think I've got more to give than grumpiness. Well, I guess being on the project has opened you up to a, a wider audience of people who may not read newspaper or listen to talkback radio. Has that surprised you, the kind of, I guess, new audience that is aware of you? Yeah, it has. I mean, I've been on there 13 years now, uh, which uh, with Carrie Bickmore's recent retirement and Peter Hellier deciding he's going to do something else next year, I'm now the longest serving person on the desk, which quite surprises me that a uh, an old white male has lasted that long in a show where the demographic is clearly probably under 35. Yeah. And it has opened me up to a whole different range of topics, a whole different audience and a whole different range of things to talk about, which is great because, uh, you know, doing uh, as I do you know, two hours a day on radio live five days a week, uh, it's great to... You know, there, there are issues that we've discussed on the project that I would not necessarily have, have ever tackled on Talkback Radio. I mean, gender equality, uh, the same-sex marriage debate we did a lot about. Um, you know, issues that, you know, perhaps I wouldn't be as interested in as I am in politics. We do it on the project and it gives me a greater understanding of those things. 13 years ago versus now. Yeah. Are you different? Do you, the way you see the world is different? from being exposed to, I guess, all these different topics and conversations? There's no doubt about that. I mean, when I started on there, uh, the hosts were uh, Carrie um, and Charlie Pickering and Dave Hughes, and the show went for half an hour. Um, Charlie and I butted heads like you wouldn't believe. Uh, Charlie's now at the ABC where he probably belongs, and he and I just used to argue constantly on air and off air uh, to the point where we probably had to have a sit down, have a chat, and, and wind it back a bit. Uh, I was much more aggressive then than uh, than I am now in in doing those sorts of programs. I've mellowed, and I think the jungle mellowed me as well. So uh, as you get older, I think everybody mellows a bit. To be honest, since we're on the topic of opinions, let me throw you some quick fire guys questions and quick answer. Uh, thoughts on people who give their cars names. Stupid. The wave. Uh, is it, should it be illegal for people not to wave to each other if you get led into traffic? Yeah, you should wave. I have a particular road down near where I live in Sorrento, which has got a lot of uh, cross, a lot of traffic limiting uh, turns on it. And I always wave to people. Yeah. Uh, should people over 65 have to renew their licenses no. yearly for no. safety reasons? No. 65 is not old. I mean, who would even think that? I mean, I wouldn't even... My mother's still driving at 87. she a good driver? Yeah, yes. <laughs> Just because you get old doesn't mean you forget how to drive. Well, should people get their P's under 18 years old? Yeah, I think 16 is probably the best age to do that. Uh, it was 16 when I got my licence. One of the reasons that I heard on Talk About Radio the other day for that, I know this is a long, not one-word answer, um, <laughs> because you, you can drink at the age of 18, so why would you coincide the, the ability to go and legally drink mm. and legally drive at the same time? Why wouldn't you let people get two years of experience driving before they can, I mean, I, I know you're not supposed to drink and drive, but the two things are big life-changing events. You shouldn't do them at the same time, I don't think. 
Well, I got my L's at 15 and nine months in Canberra. And then to know that people in other states, you know, it's a really weird number that they decided on, that they got their L's like at eight or 17 or 18. I thought it was really odd. Yeah, one of my children actually got their uh, P-plates in Canberra for that very reason, because they knew they could do it earlier. <laughs> um, do cars have too much technology in them these days? Potentially. Um, the car we're driving uh, has just about every bit of technology you can think of. The bit that I really appreciate, well, there's two bits, one you'll laugh at, one you won't. Um, the, the technology where if you and I were driving along this road we're on now and someone walked out in front of us, this car would stop us from running them over. Yeah. I've actually tested it out at uh, Sydney Motorsport Park. I thought you were going to say just at a pedestrian crossing somewhere. No, <laughs> I wouldn't do that. Uh, so one of the Mercedes uh, works team drivers stood in the middle of pit lane and we drove straight at him oh, and the car stopped. And I was told by the Mercedes driver in the car with me, don't take your foot off the accelerator. So do you want me to try it? Yeah, give it a go. No <laughs> the other bit of technology in this car, which I, I only found out of by accident the other night, I got out of the car, turned the engine off, got out of the car and left my phone in the console. And a female voice said, you've left your phone behind. Do you, can you believe that? A bit creepy? Well, <laughs> potentially creepy, but how good. So you don't go upstairs into your office and go, oh, bugger, I've left my phone in the car. But this woman, I don't know who she is, tells you that you've left your phone behind. Very helpful. Um, are you getting flashbacks? So we've been driving around Albert Park for the last, you know, 20, 20 30 minutes. You need to go the other way. Uh, I know um, what your question is going to be. You, you have been um, one of the lucky people to partake in the celebrity challenge during the Formula One. Uh, are you getting PTSD or cherished nostalgia from this? Oh, cherished nostalgia, I tell you what, uh, it was one of the greatest experiences of my life. I've done it twice, both times in BMW Z3s oh, yeah. with the roof off. Good and bad about that. The bad, um, I was on Melbourne radio at the time when I first did it and I was driving through the pit paddock with the roof off and a couple of blokes thought it'd be fun to throw beer cans at me. <laughs> so luckily I had a crash helmet on because one hit me right in the top of the head. Um, I wasn't that quick, but it meant that we did two weeks of driver training each time, a week each time, at Sandown Racecourse yeah. with so one, of, one of the greatest things that I've ever had happen to me. I'm in a BMW M3 with an earpiece in. Oh, yeah. And behind me in another M3, legendary Australian motorsport figure in Alan Moffat. Oh, wow. Telling me when to brake, when to turn, and how to drive around Sandown. You imagine doing that in an M3? Jeez. That'd be fun, but very nerve-wracking, I imagine. Oh. Don't want to stuff it up in front of the legend. So much fun. And the, the fact that you had to brake so much later than I thought you had to, and Moffat saying, don't break yet, don't break yet, with his Canadian accent. It was fantastic. And I had the, I had the pleasure here at uh, Albert Park in doing two laps of this circuit in a two-seater F1 car yeah. with Will Davison driving, going 380k down the straight. Did you think that you're going to be a, your next career pivot back into a bit of, bit of race car driving on the weekends? I'd love to do it, but it's such an expensive sport to get involved in. But it's so much fun when you get it right. And both those celebrity races I was in were won by James Tonkin, the Australian 
oh, gold yeah. medal winning rower. And the reason being, his hand-to-eye coordination yeah. was second to none. The sports people always win those races, you notice. What, what's next? Are you, you know, much the same? Keep doing what you're doing? Do you want to pivot? Do you want to be the new host of the project? Like, what's, what, what do you think, you know, you'd like to try next? Uh, I think I'm pretty happy with what I'm doing, to be honest. I still like doing the project. Uh, very sad farewell for Carrie Bicknell, which was emotional and it was always going to be emotional. Uh, I love writing for the, for the uh, Saturday Herald Sun uh, because that challenges my brain each week. And I think that when you, when you get to my age, I'm 67, it'll be 68 next year, you have to have something to get up for every day to keep your brain active. And if you don't keep your brain active, then a friend of mine has a very good saying, don't let the old man in. And if you're not working and you're not doing something regularly, and when you think about it, every day for 50 years, aside from weekends, I've had a deadline. Mm. And if you've got a deadline to meet, you got a reason for being. And I don't want to give that up that reason for being. I love it. What would, advice would you give you know, a young kid potentially wanting to start in journalism? Because you know, even though it's evolved a lot, it still, I guess, is a valid career path. It's a great career path if you can get in. It's very hard to, but I would just say, knock on as many doors as you can and keep knocking until someone lets you come and work. And if you have to work for six months without, without any pay or eight months or whatever it be, just show them and prove to them that you're good enough to do the job and you'll get your chance. And once you get your chance and you get your foot in the door, you'll love it. I mean, I've had the best, best career I could possibly have, have wished for and it all happened by accident. But, you know, what other job do you get where, you know, you're standing in a cocktail party chatting to Lady Diana Spencer, which I did when she came out here on the Royal Tour in 83, or... We cannot <laughs> leave a Lady Die question, leaf unturned there. How did you manage to get a ticket to an event like that? And this is not on uh, The Crown, this is real. I was going to say, are you going to be in real. the next season of The Crown? <laughs> this is real, this is not some soap opera. Um, so in 1983, uh, Charles and Di were still married. This is pre-Camilla, although wow. Camilla, was, Camilla might have all been there in the background anyway. Um, so we end up, I end up having to cover a royal tour for the Melbourne afternoon newspaper. And uh, I was on the road with Charles and Di for a month. And at the beginning of that tour, uh, as is tradition, they have cocktail drinks. Uh, we were in Alice Springs of all place, which was actually flooded while we were there. And we went to the casino in Alice Springs and uh, we were each of us invited to have a quick chat to uh, Princess Diana, which I did. She was absolutely spectacularly gorgeous. She had the most incredible English rose type skin. And she was quite interesting asking about, you know, where we were and why we were there. We then jumped on a plane and flew out to Ayers Rock at dawn. There's a famous picture of Charles in a safari suit. Mm. Do you know what a safari yes. suit is? Looks like Nigel Thornbury. Yeah, he's there in his safari suit and Lady Di standing next to him with that sort of demure look on her face. They seemed very happy in 83, even though she was not uh, all that happy about leaving William, who was then a baby. He stayed behind at a sheep station in New South Wales. But we went everywhere on that tour. We went to ginger factories, we went to hospitals, we went to car plants. And you can just see what a punish it would be uh, to be a royal and 
Charles didn't have much personality, but and and he used to get pissed off because everyone wanted to see her. So mm. when you go on one of those walks down the main street of Melbourne or Sydney, Di'd go on one side and Charles would go on the other. And of course, all the people on Di's side were the ones who wanted to see her. That no no one had any interest in talking to Charles at all. So that probably put a seed into their relationship that that they never recovered from. He he couldn't cope with the fact that even though he was the Prince of Wales, he was going to be, as he is now, King Charles III, uh, that everyone wanted to see die, not him. Before we wrap up today, I ask all my guests this question. So, life like a road trip, twists and turns, ups and downs, can take you anywhere. How would you describe your life in regards to a road trip? It's a very long and winding road with lots of surprises around each corner. Steve Price, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. Cheers. Along for the Ride is a listener and car sales production hosted by me, Anthony Matafari. Producer is Kelsey Menzies, audio by Kelly Fulston, and executive producer is Todd Stevens. Listener.